Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. So I'm sitting in Wisconsin and Ann Applebaum is in, you're in Poland right now, Ann? I am indeed in Poland. I'm in Sopot, Poland. Well, congratulations on uh, on your book, The Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism, which is out in paperback. This was named the best book of the year by the Washington Post and the Financial Times. And as many of our listeners know, Anne is a is a Pulitzer Prize winner. Um, and, and I am I am fascinated by this book as as I was by your earlier article in The Atlantic, uh, where you describe what has happened with the intellectual class. And, that, and that's, that's really what I want to focus on. It's, it's it, you know, a lot of our commentary is about Trump and what Trump is doing. But what, what's, what really is, I, I think, the enduring mystery is the attraction of intellectuals and pundits to uh, authoritarianism. So but before we get started, this, because I know that you've written very extensively about some of these these folks, including Laura Ingram, uh, yesterday we had some very, very dramatic testimony by the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Mark Milley, who uh, was going back and forth about critical race theory. Uh, in case you missed it, this is what uh, General Milley had to say. Um, first of all, on the issue of critical race theory, et cetera, I'll, I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Um, but I do think it's important, actually. Uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university, uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage, and I'm white, and I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, and guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders, now and in the future, do understand it. I've read Mao Zedong. I've read, I've read Karl Marx. I've read Lenin. That doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. That was started at Harvard Law School years ago, and it proposed that there were laws in the United States, antebellum laws prior to the Civil War, that led to uh, a power differential with African Americans that were three-quarters of a human being when this country was formed. And then we had a Civil War and Emancipation Proclamation to change it, and we brought it up to the Civil Rights Act in 1964. It took another 100 years to change that. So look it, I do want to know, and I respect your service, and you and I are both Green Berets, but I want to know, and it matters to our military and the discipline and cohesion of this military, and I thank you for the opportunity to make a comment on that. Um, I don't know whether you heard this, Ann, but Laura Ingram was highly triggered by what General Milley had to say. This is what Laura Ingram said afterwards. We are sending our tax dollars to this military to an attempt to weed out so-called extremists, which just means conservative evangelical, as far as I can tell. Uh, no. We're paying for that? Why, why is Congress not saying we're not going to give you a penny until all of this is eradicated from the military budget? Nothing. This is my offer to you. Nothing. That's what I would say. I'm, I'm, to I'm totally outraged by him and his ridiculous response today. Sorry, Congressman. 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, Ann Applebaum, uh, Laura, Laura Ingram is now uh, all in with defunding the military to uh, own the libs, I guess. So, <laughs> okay, so let me back into this because you, you in this in this book, the Twilight of Democracy. Again, you're you're less focused on the the autocrats them, themselves than with the the mentality of the courtiers who make the, the, the tyrant possible, the writers, the intellectuals, pamphleteers, bloggers, spin doctors, producers of television programs, and creators of memes who can sell his image to the public. So in your book, you spent a lot of time on Laura Ingram. Why, 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 why her, by the way? So the, one of the reasons I wrote this book was because I felt that I was a witness to something, that I had observed a shift of political mood of world historical proportions, um, that I, I was part of what you could describe roughly as the center-right, um, and I had connections in it in more than one country in the 1990s. Um, and I then watched it shift, and shift quite dramatically, especially in the last decade, um, and I wrote about Laura because I know her slightly. She was not a close friend, but I've met her several times. We have some friends in common. Um, and she's someone who I think I've been on her radio program in the past. Um, and she's someone who, um, you know, seemed to me to epitomize that shift in the United States. I mean, of course, I could have picked other people. But, um, you know, the, the, the point of my book and the reason I wrote it the way I did, it's not a history book. It's not written objectively, it doesn't, I didn't use archives. I didn't, you know, it's, it's a, it's a book that's written from my specific point of view. Here's what this looked like to me. Um, and Laura is somebody who is really fascinating because she was always attracted to the right. She was, since she was in college, um, she was a college conservative, um, but she's extremely well-educated. So she defies a lot of the stereotypes about the right. You know, she's very, she's very educated. She went to an Ivy League school. Um, she clerked for uh, Supreme Court justice. She worked in Tony law firms. Um, she's someone who understands what she's doing. She's very well-traveled. You know, she's not provincial. Um, so she understands very well the world that she lives in, and she knows what she's doing. She's also somebody who is attracted to the, 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 the cutting edge, the culture war, um, the controversy. She's not really interested in policy. She didn't want to be part of a, um, you know, a, you know, a, a, a conservative or a Republican government that made um, important and meaningful decisions about, um, you know, tax rates on, on, on this or that. She wasn't really very interested in any of those kinds of discussions. She was interested in confrontation and, as you just jokingly said, owning the libs. And if that means um, coming out against the Joint Chiefs of Staff, if that means coming out against um, any of her old former colleagues and friends, she will do it. I mean, she's, she's in this for confrontation for attention and for uh, and for what she sees I mean I actually believe that she's of this group some of this group is is extremely um, to um, you know to it to it to a, to a character cynical I think she's actually quite ideological um, and and pushing what she sees as an alternate vision of America. You know, her her America is being lost, the world that she grew up in or the world that she's nostalgic for, the world of her childhood, and she wants to 
to, to push back against it. She's, she's not a conservative anymore. She's really a radical. Um, and I think to come out against the U.S. military, to defund the U.S. military, we're not paying them any taxes because they want to talk about American history, um, is, is further proof that she's, she's ready to continue this and take it as far as it goes. What I think is most valuable about your book and your perspective is, is that you look at this from a a, a that you, you notice that this is not just an American phenomenon that you're seeing this happening on the right in Eastern Europe and uh, and, and really throughout the world, and also there there is a, a long tradition of intellectuals who have this odd fascination with both left and right wing authoritarianism. There's an attraction. There is, as your book says, the lure of authoritarianism. So you, you basically, and correct me if, if, I, if I'm wrong in this, you have kind of three different different explanations for this. So, some do it because of, you know, for personal gain. Others um, experience what you call cultural despair. Third possible reason is that a lot of these intellectuals n- were never really small D Democrats at all. So talk to me about this. Why authoritarianism has this attraction to intellectuals? So I, again, I think it's to do with a very deep level of disappointment. And as you say, in some cases, it can be personal disappointment. I have not received the recognition that I think I deserve. And that's, by the way, something that Laura Ingram um, is demonstrates in spades. Um, um, sometimes it's disappointment with your country. You know, it is going the wrong way, radically the wrong way. It's declined. It's not what it was. Um, it has to be rescued before it collapsed. Sometimes it's disappointment with conservatism, with your own party. Um, the party is too soft. It's not pushing hard enough. It's made too many compromises. It's the desire for a kind of ideological purity. Um, and this is something that's very appealing to intellectuals, you know, a world in which um, the, you know, there's a set of rules and everybody conforms to the rules um, and they and they fit into the ideology and the ideology works and just keeps driving forward. And that's, you can talk about the radical right, you can talk about the radical left, um, and that impulse um, is very often there. And of course, in that kind of world, there's a big role for intellectuals um, because if you have an authoritarian state, somebody has to run that state. Um, and that state in particular needs propagandists. It needs people who can describe it, who can sell it, um, who can who can whip up the divisions and keep the fear and anger at, at high levels um, so that people will support it or will not rebel against it. Um, it's something that, I mean, and you, can, you can see it all the way back through the 20th century and even before. Um, uh, the, the, you know, it's, it's very often the thinkers and writers and, and people who are capable of imagining alternatives, in fact, who become um, the, 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 the propagandists for authoritarianism. Because one, particularly in a case like ours, where we are living in a democracy now, um, and it's dis- and, pe- and pe- the, they are people who feel disappointed with the democracy and they begin to imagine something else. You know, what else could there be? How can we act against this? How can we push back against it? Um, and intellectuals find that appealing. You know, they they like to imagine alternate realities. They like to imagine what else we could live in. And of course, they like to imagine worlds in which there's a big role for themselves. So this, I think, will come as a surprise to some people who assume that many of these intellectuals have gone along out of cowardice or because they've, they've sold out. It's just simply careerism. And of course, there is that, that, that factor. But Ultimately, they believe this, don't they? 
I mean, and this, this was something that I remember years ago when I read The Captive Mind that really sort of startled me, that a lot of the intellectuals who had gone along with totalitarian communism had convinced themselves that it was right. So that they, they might have been bullied or coerced or intimidated into it at some point, but they, they at some point they sincerely believe this stuff, don't they? Some do and some don't. Um, I think Laura probably does. I think Tucker Carlson probably doesn't. Um, so that's you know you can you can you can make divisions. But yes, I I you know belief and um, fervor around that belief and um, faith in the leader and faith in in the set of ideas um, is very common. Um, and yes, I mean many people believed in in communism when it first arrived in their countries, or they. Or they, you know, they saw reasons why they should believe in it, or they were convinced to believe in it, or they became convinced that their old way of seeing the world was flawed. Um, remember that the anything that has power behind it, you know, power, money, or influence, um, can can come to seem attractive to people. Um, and and whatever we're calling the radical right now, I mean, I think Trumpism is maybe the wrong expression for it. Um, but it, they did have in over the last four years, they had real power, um, and one and they will now want it back. Um, and there's an appeal, you know, there's a, it's very hard to separate in the human brain, the appeal of these different things, you know, the ideological appeal, the appeal of power, the appeal of money, the appeal of, um, you know, being personally being a leader and having a role, um, you know, Laura's career absolutely tracks Trump's career. I mean, she didn't get her full, you know, her full, um, you know, Fox primetime program really until he was on the scene. Um, she had been relegated to radio. Um, and so her persona is now deeply wrapped up in him and the world vision that he represents. And it will be very difficult for her to extricate herself from that. I doubt she has any distance from it. Um, you know, probably the Laura of 10 years ago would be stunned to hear herself, you know, ranting against, you know, senior U.S. military officers. Um, but there we are. So this is also happening in, in, in places like Poland and Hungary. In, in, in Hungary, you have uh, Viktor Orban. I'm trying to shift this off of all Donald Trump all the time because, you know, you, you do focus on this Viktor Orban who has become kind of a darling of the authoritarian right. What is the attraction of somebody like Viktor Orban or the right-wing populist leader of uh, the, the governing law and justice party in Poland? What is their attraction to intellectuals in those countries? Is it the same thing? It's, it's, it's incredibly similar. So I have to tell you, one of the great shocks of my adult life was the discovery, the accidental discovery, just because of the coincidences of my life. I lived part of the time in Poland. I'm married to uh, a Pole. Um, my discovery that... Um, political moods in Poland and the United States could be so similar. I mean, we're talking about countries that could not be more different. I mean, Poland is, mm -hmm. you know, homogenous. There's no diversity. It's got its weird history in Central Europe, you know, and, uh, you know, the United States couldn't be more different, different political institutions, different history, different culture. And yet so many of the patterns over the last several years um, are the same. Um, and I watched around me a very similar phenomenon here, whereby people, again, whom I knew, who were people who'd been guests at my house, you know, over the years, um, again, turned, became um, disappointed. Again, it's always about disappointment, disappointed by their place in post-communist Poland or by the nature of post-communist government. Um, for many people here, 
you know, they'd imagine something different after 1989, or they'd imagine a different and bigger, greater role for themselves. Um, and when it didn't happen, when they didn't become prime minister or best-selling author or whatever it was, um, they turned against the system. And and the, because the system was democracy, that meant turning against democracy. And it was it was very marked here and very. Um, uh, and it happened within a fairly short huh. period of time. And you could see, you know, you can watch people make the, the, the transition. But it's a little but you know, it's not that different for the United States. I mean, again, the Laura Ingraham, who was a Reaganite, you know, who was, um, you know, a, a very close to President Bush, um, you know, who was a great who was a great advocate of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, imagining, you know, could she have imagined herself saying what she's just what you've just played her saying? Um, you know, a decade ago, you know, I was talking about defunding the military. I, mean, I don't think so. She, she's made a really dramatic transition, but it, but so have many other people um, in the, um, it, you know, in the in their disappointment with modernity, their disappointment with the modern world, and sometimes, as I said, in their disappointment with their own careers. I thought of different ways of asking this question and and and, and failed, so I'll ask it this way. Um, <laughs> that. Is part of the appeal that authoritarianism is just sexier than liberal democracy? At a certain point, liberal democracy is about procedure. It can be boring. It can be ineffective. There's something rousing and arousing about authoritarianism, isn't there? I mean, the appeal, again, and particularly to intellectuals, the appeal of absolutism, um, of unity, of force, of power, you know, I can make a decision without having to consult anybody else. Um, I don't have to be part of a coalition. Uh, I don't have to follow the rules. I can break the rules. I mean that, yes, you're right. I mean, there is a huge appeal in that. Um, uh, you know, the, the, you know, norm shattering, rule breaking, you know, I'm a, I'm so big and so important and so influential that I don't have to do these petty things that other people do. I don't have to worry about, um, you know, nepotism or laws against, you know, conflict of interest because I'm so, um, I'm above that. Um, and many, you know, very often um, the way you hear, you will hear people of that, uh, you know, of that viewpoint talk about the past, they'll talk about past leaders using that same kind of language, you know, once upon a time, we didn't have all this garbage, you know, we didn't have to, you know, generals didn't have to think about history or worry about whether they're, you know, you know, uh, you know, about the education of their troops, they were just winning wars and beating people and, and achieving victories. And of course, if you, you know, if you really went back to the 19th century, and you look at the closely at the biographies of an actual general, you know, Grant, for example, um, you discover along the way, you know, of course, their lives were full of pettiness and ridiculous controversies. And Grant was constantly fighting mm -hmm. um, this accusation that he was an alcoholic, you know. But in, in the, with the distance of time, it doesn't look like that. All we see is the statue, you know, the man on the horse, you know, and his sword and his victory. Um, and the appeal of that is really strong. Um, the statue, the image, the the, the simplicity um, of of what's you know of what seems to them to be authoritarianism. Yes, I do think that they like that clarity. So in this country, it seems that most of the authoritarianism is performative, at least at this point. So at what point? Tell me whether you agree with me. But at what point do you go from performative authoritarianism to the real thing, the reality? So I agree with you that mostly it's been performative. Um, I think that there was a turning point on January the 6th um, when you saw a group of people who were motivated to 
alter the procedures of the Constitution in order to um, force Trump back into the White House. I mean, you know, probably what they wanted to do was impossible and it couldn't be done. And as it turned out in practice, it couldn't be done. But several people died um, while they were trying to do it. Um, And I am worried about a repetition of that. Um, It won't look exactly like that, but uh, a version of events perhaps in 2024 um, when perhaps we have a Republican House and Senate, um, perhaps we have a number of states who've changed the way they count or or the way they make decisions about um, the Electoral College. Um, And I'm worried about votes being thrown out and a president being declared who was not voted president legally. Um, And then we will have a false president and then we will have a major conflict, uh, major conflict. And then then we will have something something looking more like authoritarianism. I I saw that you had tweeted out after we had those Washington Post reports about what the administration was doing in those final days, pressuring the Department of Justice. I think you tweeted out that they were not playing a game. They were serious about it. I mean, this you know, this is. We, we can roll our eyes about this, but this was in earnest the first time around. So, absolutely uh, in earnest. Yes, absolutely in earnest. I had trouble convincing friends of mine of that, by the way, including some right. Republican friends who are reluctant to see that. Um, but yes, I, I do believe they were in earnest. I do believe that Trump thought there was some way to change the rules so that he thought there could be a constitutional interference, that Mike Pence could be prevented from you know, signing the document or stamping the stamp or you know, and that, that the vote could be stopped and that therefore Joe Biden would not become president. I do believe that they believe that. And you know, we've just been talking about do, you know, the, the nature of ideology and how it can convince you of, of things. You know, you can, can, can introduce you to convince you of an alternate reality. And I believe that Trump, some of the people around him, and certainly many of the people who were in the crowd at the Capitol really believed it. They were there to change the outcome of the election. And I think that even to this day, we are insufficiently shocked by this when we think about this, that even a year ago, what we're describing would have been unthinkable, and yet it happened. And I also think, and I would be interested to know if you agree, that that since January 6th, there has been a further radicalization, that you're seeing attitudes that are now being embraced. I saw a poll earlier this morning, and I think I got this right, that a substantial number of Republican voters are now completely okay with the idea of state legislatures stepping in and reversing the results of the presidential election. And uh, that, 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 that this has now become normalized in a way that would have never been imaginable pre-January 6th. So, again, this is how we go from performative authoritarianism to the possibility of the reality. Can I play you one clip, by the way? Um, this it, it's, it's always difficult to know when you're picking something that is just simply an outlier out there or whether it's it's something that's going to be a precursor of, of something, you know, darker and, and uglier. Uh, the most extreme network out there right now is OAN. Um, you know, it's in competition with Newsmax for being, you know, even crazier than 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 Fox News. But one here's one of the presenters on uh, One America Network now or whatever they call it, uh, who is openly talking about executing potentially hundreds, if not thousands of people um, because of the allegations of fake voter fraud. So let's just play that soundbite. Which raises even more questions about exactly how many people were involved in these efforts to undermine the election. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands. How many people does it take to carry out a coup against the presidency? 
And when all the dust settles from the audit in Arizona and the potential audits in Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Wisconsin, what happens to all these people who are responsible for overthrowing the election? What are the consequences for traitors who meddled with our sacred democratic process and tried to steal power by taking away the voices of the American people? What happens to them? Well, in the past, America had a very good solution Mm. for dealing with such traitors. What was that? Execution. Okay, so we're, we're not there yet. But here you have someone on a news network in the United States that has been promoted by the former president of the United States openly and more frequently using the term traitor to describe political opponents and then suggesting that we execute, that we execute people who are accused of engaging in this non-existent election fraud. I mean, that, that has an impact on the, on the political culture of a nation, doesn't it, at some point? Uh, absolutely. And, you know, as I was saying, before these things can happen, they have to first be imagined. Uh, and there have to people pe- be people who are doing the imagining. And the newscaster who you were just whose whose words you just played mm-hmm. is imagining that right now, and he's putting that idea in the heads of his of uh, of his listeners. Um, look, you know the the other the other interesting thing again, another illustration of how the United States is not unique. Um, if you look at other countries where there has been dramatic democratic decline. Um, you, all, you very often find out that the you discover that the the awareness of decline lags years behind the decline itself. I mean, the best example I know of is Venezuela, where um, Hugo Chavez took over the presidency. He also used this language of, um, you know, my opponents are traitors. Um, I'm fighting a, a corrupt elite. Um, I'm taking back Venezuela in the name of the real people, the real Venezuelan people. Um, you know, he, he used exactly that kind of language. Um, upon becoming um, president of Venezuela, he, um, you know, he immediately began interfering with the courts. He changed the voting rules, and on and on and on. He began restricting the media. Um, but even kind of six or so, six seven years into his rule, when you did a survey of Venezuelans and you asked them if their country was still a democracy, um, for a very long time, the majority said yes. Mm-hmm. So. So even as the institutions were visibly being undermined, you know, um, people still couldn't believe that their democracy was gone. Um, They didn't accept it. Um, And it was really only after it became it became clear that he could not be changed. In other words, that he and then Maduro who followed him um, would simply falsify elections if, you know, if the result was wrong um, and that they would not give up power under any circumstances, even if there was a majority support for somebody else. Only then, and that was after many years, um, did people in Venezuela come to terms with the fact that their country, which had been a democracy for many decades before that, was no longer. And it is not impossible that we will have this in the United States, that even as we begin to lose aspects of the democratic consensus, um, even as one of our major political parties um, 
you know, takes an anti-democratic turn, even as people like the OANN man and Laura Ingraham um, began begin openly imagining alternatives, it will be a long time before people really take it seriously, before they think it actually affects them. I mean, I've again, I've watched the same phenomenon in Poland where you had a, a ruling party take over the government and then, um, which they did legitimately, but then as soon as they took power, they began to politicize the court system. Um, and it it, it didn't affect most people. Most people said, well, I'm, you know, the, the, the fact that there's a constitutional court, which is no longer independent of the, of the ruling party, why do I care? I mean, that doesn't affect the price of bread. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm restricted from going around the corner and, you know, to the bar. I mean, it, so people didn't feel it in their daily lives and they won't until it's until much later. Um, and that is, of course, the danger with with democratic decline. So why is this all happening? Why are these authoritarians coming to power? Because you, 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 you note in the book that a lot of the usual explanations, economic distress, t- fear of terrorism, you know, pressure of immigration, that you know, obviously they have had great impact, but they don't really explain why so many intellectuals all around the world are moving in this direction right now. Why is it happening? I, I think there's a combination of reasons. Um, um, one of them does have to do with the relative decline of the democracies against other countries, um, the sense that there are alternatives now, whether it's China or Russia um, or, 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 or other countries that pose, that provide these alternatives that, that people can, that people allow people to imagine differently. Um, that's one reason. Yeah, a second reason is not so much the financial crisis itself, um, because there was a recovery from that, not so much the effects on people economically, although, of course, that mattered, but the sense of um, that we have somehow lost our way, that our certainty about our expertise and our knowledge of how the world works um, isn't what we thought it was, a sense of, you know, you know, a sense that, that we've somehow lost out. And that kind of combined with, again, Iraq and other other issues um, to bother Americans. And then the third thing, and this is, it's very, very hard to measure this. And I go back and forth and I've had this argument recently, even with Jonathan Rauch about how much it really matters. I really do think that the transformation of the information space, um, you know, the, 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 the information revolution really that we've lived through over the past decade has had a profound effect on the way that people think mm-hmm. and communicate. Um, and it's partly it's to do with um, the rise of um, very partisan, um, you know, commercial television. It turns out that you can make money off hatred and anger and, and, and anti-democratic authoritarian language. And a lot of it is to do with the Internet, not just social media, although, of course, social media, which gives people, again, a business model to, to sell and, and push disinformation. Um, also, you know, it simply raises the quantity of disinformation and misinformation that people can get and see every day, which I think has a different psychological effect on people as well as on journalists um, who are formed as well by this and who, who pass on and other influencers, you know, who pass on information. Um, and the fact that the, the the nature of our conversation now is not conducted according to rules that are conducive to creating consensus, which you need in democracy, or creating compromise, which you need in democracy. Instead, all of the the power and the money and the attention go to peop- the people who are the most divisive. You know, the loudest, the shoutiest, mm-hmm. the 
um, the most extreme. Um, and the extremities attract attention, money, and so on. Um, and, and there's something about the way in which the rules of conversation have changed that I think is, has a, and, and, that, and that, by the way, would explain why the United States and Poland and the Philippines and Turkey, none of which have anything to do with each other culturally or politically or any other way, are living through similar moments because we are all experiencing the same kind of information revolution and it's affecting all of us in similar ways. I, I, again, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, lose the other things, the other, you know, the geopolitical change, the economic changes that, that also have affected people. But I do think that plays a huge role. I think I, I agree. So the title of your book is the twilight of democracy is, is democracy in twilight? Are we losing this? Are we losing now? <laughs> So nothing is inevitable. I mean, just as it was wrong to imagine, as we did in the 1990s, that democracy would last forever and everybody would eventually become one because that's just, you know, that's the way it happens. And none of us even have to do anything or try very hard. It will just, you know, automatically evolve that way. That was that was wrong to think that way. I mean, it's, it, you know, it is it would be equally wrong for me to say, you know, there will definitely be a decline or, you know, we're finished or, you know, I don't, I don't like these, you know, this civilizational nihilism. Um, I, I would say rather that the future of democracy, like the future of America, depends on decisions that all of us make every day. I mean, the, you know, the future is, in fact, radically open. It can go in many directions. Um, and what's really important right now is that people educate themselves, they understand what's going on, and they do what they can in their communities or in their homes or in their workplaces um, to, to, to make sure that we that we, you know, that we don't lose this incredible um, system of political consensus and compromise that we created over, you know, over two centuries. The book is Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. Anne Applebaum, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate it very, very much. So delighted. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. <laughs>